0: On this episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I speak with Kevin Morgan, CEO of ProLiteracy, about making the transition from a successful career in advertising to a new career in running a nonprofit.
1: You have to be able to show results. Are you impacting your mission? What are the analytics? If I gave you money, what did you use it on? Did it do any good?
0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, conversations with accomplished professionals from across the nonprofit sector about what they do, why they do it, and how they make change happen. I am your host, Justin Waddell from nonprofitready.org and the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. Today, I am pleased to be joined by Kevin Morgan, CEO at ProLiteracy, a national nonprofit based in Syracuse, New York, tackling the adult literacy problem here in the U.S. and around the world. We asked Kevin to be on the podcast because many of our Nonprofit Ready learners are relatively new to the world of nonprofits or are taking on additional responsibilities in their organizations. Kevin is someone who recently undertook such a transition and can speak to what it's like moving from the for-profit to the nonprofit sector and some of the challenges inherent to being a first-time nonprofit CEO. Should be a great discussion. So without further ado, let's welcome in Kevin Morgan from ProLiteracy. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Justin. Thank you. So, I suppose it's best to start at the beginning. Could you tell me and tell our audience a little bit about your early professional career and influences?
1: Yeah, sure. My uh, early career was in marketing. I eventually uh, got into the ad agency world, uh, worked on you know, a lot of different accounts, and did it for a long time and uh, was happy with it. But I eventually made this change. Uh, more from a background standpoint, I, I volunteered and, and then got involved in the nonprofit space, uh, you know, worked on a couple of nonprofit boards, and as you said, uh, eventually made the transition. But my, my early career was uh, rooted in advertising and marketing.
0: Perhaps this would be a good time to transition to just how you got involved with ProLiteracy. Uh, what brought you and that organization together? Was this something that had been with you since you were young, an issue you were passionate about? or did you happen upon it and it was really just serendipity
1: Yeah I, I tell people I'm I'm kind of an accidental literacy guy uh I was working hmm. uh for a tech agency during the the first dot com craze in the late 90s and uh, you know into 2000 and we uh, we had a lot of big accounts and uh business was good and then after the dot com crash uh a lot of agencies including ours were looking for ways to Drum up new business, and the creative team I was working with at the time came up with a viral idea, and we couldn't figure out who to pitch it to. And then uh, we thought a literacy organization would be a good place to start. And at the time, there uh, there were two uh, literacy organizations. They were both in Syracuse, New York. One was Labock Literacy, and the other one was Literacy Volunteers of America. And we pitched it to both organizations, and they loved it. They loved the idea, but they didn't have any money to do anything with it. And uh, so we kind of went on our merry way, but I was intrigued. That was the first time that I was introduced to the, the issue of adult literacy. And I was intrigued by it because like a lot of people, I, I didn't know the problem was that big. And I, and if I did, I, I thought it was more of an international, you know, developing country issue. Uh, and it was amazed that you know, it's, it's an issue right here in the United States. So I started to get involved at that point and, and eventually, uh, I, I had those contacts uh, with those two organizations, which wound up merging back in 2002 to form Pro Literacy. Uh, I continued to get involved and eventually was asked to serve on the board of directors back in 2007.
0: And what was that step like uh, moving to the board of directors uh, from just introductory volunteering?
1: If you've ever served on a nonprofit board, and I've served on a couple, a lot of times the focus of the board tends to revolve around financial issues and, uh, you know, the health of the organization, uh, you know, the incoming revenue streams. And I joked uh, after my first couple of board meetings, uh, hey, do we ever get a chance to talk about the mission of the organization and how to impact the mission and, you know, the, the people that were on the board at the time uh, laughed because that was kind of an ongoing uh, comment. You realize when you serve on a nonprofit board, regardless of the size of the nonprofit, that the finance uh, and health of the organization is really uh, paramount and uh, it's the first thing you have to talk about because if you don't have that sustainability, then uh, the rest of it really doesn't matter.
0: Uh, now, board governance is actually you know, frequently a, a hot topic issue. Do you have any recommendations from your experience on the board for you know, more effective relations between a board and the nonprofit or really driving home that mission?
1: You know, I like to uh, describe nonprofit boards as a bell-shaped curve. And, uh, you know, if you take the right third of the curve, you have board members who are really engaged and um you know contribute a lot and volunteer a lot and and really try to make an impact. And then you have the middle third of the bell that um you know they're they're periodically engaged, but you you don't get all of their attention all of the time. And then the left third of the bell shaped curve is you know board members who they like the the concept of the cause, but I think once they they join, sometimes they find it hard to contribute the time. So I think you know the number one thing if you're looking at or would like to join a nonprofit board, uh, make sure it's a cause that you're passionate about, and also make sure that you have the time to commit.
0: Now, time, passion, effort—these are things you've obviously had in spades for pro literacy. Uh, for those who aren't yet familiar. With Pro Literacy, can you speak a little bit more to its mission, uh, its services, and the type of people it serves?
1: Absolutely. our Our mission, Pro Literacy's mission, is to increase adult literacy rates here in the United States and around the world. And um, the services that we offer—it's a combination. But uh, we we have uh, content services, so we have a publishing division called New Readers Press, and we've developed. Uh, uh, curriculum, and products that help adult learners, uh, you know, learn to read or write, uh, do basic math skills and other skill sets that can help them grow and uh, contribute. And so that's one area. Uh, we have a programs area, which um, we have a 1,000 members, uh, organizations around the country, and we provide them services uh, by... Uh, doing research, implementing new programs that they can use on a local level. And we also have an advocacy initiative, so our goal is to not only to influence public policy at both the federal and the state level, but also uh, increase awareness of the adult literacy issue, which, you know, it's strange coming from a marketing background to work for a cause that uh, has habitual low awareness. It's just not on the radar of the average American,
0: and who are your typical beneficiaries in this, in these different avenues? And do you find that you know just making that first step to ask for help is one of the more significant barriers?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the it's there's a lot of variables out there when it, when you talk about adult learners. But if you were to classify them in three areas, the first would be um, adult basic education or ABE, and that those are adults that truly function at a low level so typically a third grade level reading level or below and the second area is adult secondary education these are adults that they operate at a higher level uh, perhaps uh, you know 7th or 8th grade reading level often high school dropouts and um you know their their goal is typically to uh try to get their high school equivalency degree or their GED. Sometimes workforce training comes into uh, play as well. And then the third category, which is also the fastest growing category, is English as a second language or ESL. So oftentimes these are students that don't understand the English language or not very well. And oftentimes they're also um, low literate in their native language.
0: And to you personally, why is this issue so significant in the United States today?
1: Well, I'd like to tell people, if you name your social issue that you feel is important, and I can pretty much guarantee that adult literacy can positively impact that social issue. So unemployment, economic development, job creation, crime... K through 12 test scores, those those hot button issues, which uh, you know perhaps you'll hear as we get into the presidential debate, even poverty, all of those things can be positively impacted if you increase the adult literacy rate in this country, as well as really any country. Uh, but it's it's an issue that uh, doesn't have typically awareness and a lot of times when people find out about it their uh their reaction is either disbelief or in some cases those people had their chance uh for whatever reason uh, didn't work for them and uh let's concentrate on the kids the next generation and you know my my position on that is i'm i'm all for funding and providing additional resources to K through 12 and even pre-K. But if you don't address the adult literacy issue, you never solve the whole the whole issue itself because uh, low literacy children, even if they're getting additional resources at school, tend to be at a disadvantage because they go home to a low literacy household.
0: Yeah. So you're facing down some hugely complex national issues. Let's talk about what it looks like every day when you go to work, roll up your sleeves and actually work to address them. So in 2012, you became the interim CEO of Pro Literacy. What was the biggest adjustment for you in moving from the board of directors to the CEO role?
1: When I first got here, we we threw out the old strategic plan and, uh, and created a new one. And we tried to simplify it, but at the same time, maximize the impact. So the the we came up with five critical strategic pillars. The first one, which I mentioned earlier, was sustainability, not only from a bottom line standpoint, but also from a future standpoint. So, for instance, succession planning, hiring, uh, talent recruitment—that's part of sustainability because you need uh, you need people that will be here and bring new ideas and contribute. And you know, eventually, I won't be here forever, so. I, I have to plan for the future in terms of, you know, what's the next wave of talent that's going to come and carry the torch, uh, you know, for literacy. The mm-hmm. second area is content. We've been known historically, uh, for content. The first, the first product that, uh, pro literacy came out with back in 1965 was called News for You. We take the top AP stories, Associated Press stories every week, and we rewrite them to a, an adult basic reading level lay it out in a newspaper, and publish the newspaper. So we still do that. That's been built up over time so that, um, you know, we now have 400 products in our library. And, you know, we're we're constantly thinking about um, investment in new products, updating uh, dated products, taking uh, offline products, and creating online digital version. And so content's key for us and always has been. Uh, the third area is, is programs. So our, our program work, everything from, um, doing field research, writing white papers, uh, you know, helping our members grow. Uh, we put on a, we put on a conference every two years, uh, for professional development. And, you know, the fourth area is advocacy. Uh, the advocacy work is, uh, is something that people rely on us for to, to spread the word so, even, even talking to you today, hopefully that helps our advocacy effort. And then the fifth area is results. That's a, uh, you know, that's an area that if you work in the nonprofit world, if you don't have that as initiative, you should immediately because the, you know, there's social entrepreneurship and nonprofit are kind of uh, coming together in some ways where uh, historically, there wasn't a lot of accountability for nonprofits. You have to be able to show results. Are you impacting your mission? What are the analytics? Um, if I gave you money, what did you use it on? Did it do any good? And, you know, a lot of times, uh, historically nonprofits have been a little bit squishy in, in being able to track the impact that they have. So we've named that a strategic imperative. Some of the, Rating agencies like GuideStar, Charity Navigator, uh, Better Business Bureau, they're getting into uh, results reporting for nonprofits. So you have to be able to show that what you do, you know, you're frugal, but at the same time, creating impact.
0: Thanks for sharing those pillars. You know, I think there's a lot I'd like to dive into just from those. Um, But if you could speak to two further, the first one being talent. You know, talent is something that our organization, the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation, and nonprofitready.org are really focused on. Uh, But it is definitely a problem in the nonprofit sector in terms of being able to allocate the proper amount of resources toward a more sustainable talent pipeline. Can you tell us about how you prioritize talent and what you do to make sure that the personnel in your organization are as ready as they can be for impact?
1: I often describe us today, ProLiteracy, as a startup mentality, startup organization. We happen to be a startup that is 60 years old. But over the last 24 months, we've really created this innovation mindset. And, And so a lot of times that reinvigorates the employees that are already here. And when you start to have success and impact, you find that it's easier to attract talent. The social entrepreneurship model for me is really where you know you're operating it um, as a startup with the goal of having impact. So uh, over the last couple of years, I've been accused a couple of times of running this organization like a business. To which I say, guilty as charged, because you know that's the way you have to do it to attract talent and also keep the talent. That you have, you you have to keep people, you know, fresh and motivated, and you have to facilitate new thinking. So, I I, I look forward. I I love this uh, job right now because we're doing some new and exciting things, and I think the employees uh, think the same way. At the same time, I guess businesses in general, but nonprofits in particular, often don't have a succession plan. So, I'm not pretending that I'm going to either be around forever. Or I want to do this forever right now. I'd I'd like to be here until somebody tells me to leave. But in the meantime, you have to have a succession plan where if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, is there a team that can pick up and take over for me? Um, So, you know, hopefully uh, we've addressed that. But you have to keep you you just can't, you know, address it one time and forget about it. You have to relook at the plan no I think the the talent issue is huge, but at the same time, I think the the segment's evolving to the point where people are starting to realize that a couple of things number one non profit doesn't mean you don't make any money that's that's a common misconception We're all about operating at a surplus and making a profit because more profit equals more mission and and the second thing is You know, of all the different accounts I've worked at on the advertising side, nonprofits have the ability to provide a really exciting work environment. I mean, when you think about some of the things that you look at from a for-profit standpoint, accounting, um, marketing, building a brand, uh, you know, building awareness, having customers. You know, every nonprofit has at least one type of customer and building retention, and, uh, you know, creating loyalty, and producing results. I mean, they're all the things that you would, if you're familiar with the for-profit side, when you come over to the nonprofit uh, segment, it wouldn't seem that foreign.
0: Now, you became interim CEO in 2012. In 2014, you actually moved to Syracuse to take on the CEO role full-time. When someone asked you what you do every day, What do you tell them? What does the role of CEO for pro literacy actually look like on a daily basis?
1: Well, you wear a lot of hats. You have in no particular order of importance. You have, uh, board governance, uh, issues. You do lobbying. You, uh, you know, you build donor relations. You work with different departments within the organization. You know, you're, you're looking at, uh, you know, the long-term vision. And I'm also on the road quite a bit. So I I visit, um, I visit members out in the field and I like to try to talk to as many tutors and adult learners as I can, because sometimes you, you, you get the best input by, you know, getting to the front lines of the issue.
0: Mm -hmm. Sounds like there's a lot of moving pieces here. Can you tell our listeners about your leadership style and how you manage these and manage your teams?
1: By the time I got here, um, I was really a believer in um, hiring really smart people and uh, that brings something to the party in different ways that can help the organization divide and conquer. So we've been uh, been quite fortunate that, you know, over the last couple of years uh, we inherited a great uh, nucleus of talent here and we've also built on that.
0: And speaking of long-term goals, uh, let's talk about yours. Where do you see your career going and evolving
1: in the coming years? It definitely has evolved because when I took uh, this position as interim my original goal was to do it for 90 days and I was asked to extend that to six months and then I was asked to extend it to the 12 months and eventually uh, you know they asked me if I would stay and I really I really did like not only the cause itself but the people I was working with and our members out in the field so it's definitely been a, a second career for me and it, it's been great. So in, in the, I guess over the next five years, at least I'd like to stay either here or, or somewhere in the nonprofit uh, space, because I, I feel like social impact is, is really rewarding. And, um, so as much as I enjoyed uh, the advertising and marketing career, I don't plan to go back to that. But at the same time, some of the things I worked on, ironically, Um, you know, we're doing here, you know, from a, from a branding stamp.
0: So that in mind, uh, let's drop some wisdom. What is the one piece of advice that you would offer to someone considering a transition into the nonprofit sector?
1: Well, I'd say, uh, you know, find something you're passionate about and um, get involved either at the volunteer level, good place to start. Or, uh, you know, if you want to, you know, make the wholesale change and uh find a career in the nonprofit sector. It's very rewarding and very satisfying. And uh um, you know, you can have an impact on some of the issues that are uh happening out in the world. So uh from that standpoint, if it's something that you're thinking about, I'd I'd strongly encourage it and uh it's extremely satisfying. And on top of that, it's a lot of fun. And uh you work with great people, uh, great partners and there's really some passionate people um, out in the field, both from you know the people that do this for a, a living and the, and the people that volunteer in the space. It's, uh, it's I've really met some terrific people uh, working uh, in this over the last couple of years.
0: Awesome. Kevin, you've been an amazing guest. Uh, I have loved hearing more about your career and what proliteracy is doing. For those who are interested in learning more, where should they go?
1: Well, you can go to our website. It's proliteracy.org.
0: Awesome. Well, Kevin, again, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this week's episode. On the next episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I'll be joined by Amy Sample Ward, CEO at N10, so you will not want to miss it. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And while you're there, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. If you haven't done so already, be sure to sign up for nonprofitready.org, which includes all of our previous podcast interviews, some amazing webinars, and more than 300 online learning resources covering the most crucial job functions in the nonprofit sector, all 100% free. The Nonprofit Ready Podcast is a production of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. I want to thank our editorial director, Jeanette Lamb, our sound producer, Trung Ngo, our executive producer, Alec Green, and most importantly, you, for listening and helping us to build the Nonprofit Ready community. Learn more about the capacity building services of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation at csodfoundation.org. Thank you again, and have a great day.